Greetings, programs and users. It is time once again for Old Nerds Drinking. I'm John Patrick, the Master Control Program. With me once again is Rojan. Greetings, people. And we are Old Nerds, and today we are drinking on this most auspicious of occasions. Yeah, what is this? This is the one-year anniversary of Old Nerds Drinking. Not exactly. It was. Say, aren't we a little off by yeah, a we're week a little, or two? We're yeah. a little off by a week or two, but this was about... This, this will be the first time we've recorded in the time period of us having our one-year anniversary. Damn. As such, I have pulled from the vaults the absolute last of the Johnny Walker Blue label. I've never had Johnny Walker Blue. This is, this is scotch that is old enough to order its own scotch. Ooh. I, well, no, not not yet. I think this is 18-year-old scotch. Hmm. All right. I'll yeah, give it a shot. yeah, this is like $300 a bottle of scotch. Damn, I can smell it. It's rich. Oh, it's so good. So. That's smooth. Oh, yeah. That's really smooth. Mm-hmm. It's got a smokiness to it, Sm- but not overly smoked. No, and it doesn't burn at all. It's smooth. It tastes of like you're getting the smokiness of it. You're getting like a little bit of the wood. No peat, which is the thing I hate the most about certain scotches, is the fact that some scotches taste like you're drinking bog water. I've had smoked scotches and smoked bourbons before. High West makes a smoked bourbon that it just tastes like you're drinking liquid smoke with alcohol mixed with it. Yeah, no. I'm not a big fan of smoky stuff that's that strong. That is not an enjoyable experience at all. No, this is good. This is really good. Mm-hmm. I do like this better than that super high alcohol bourbon you gave me the one time that I had to actually dilute, and you damn near cut off my testicles for it. Yeah. Because <laughs> you diluted it, it with... It was too strong. ...carbonated I know. peach flavor. I know. Like, yeah, you, you put a little, few drops of water in it to mellow it. That's fine. I don't... I'm not gonna. Ha- I'm not going to hate on you for that, but, like... Oh, peach flavor. I drank it though. Oh. I finished drinking it. I didn't. No, let it go you to waste. didn't, because I had to dump it at the end of the Are night. You sure? I swear. I, I am one hundred percent sure. That's how you I knew no, you I mixed it with I peach. Didn't. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I didn't because I, I didn't want to get so buzzed that I couldn't drive home. Yeah. So, um, the other thing that I'm drinking is the, as you called it, Arnold Palmer spiked. The, yeah, the half and half. Um, what you called it, swill. Which I'm not. I'm not totally. You know, it, it, so. it, it, it's not. It's not that it's swill. It's swill compared to what I had intended for us to drink, which was the Johnny Walker. Yeah. Uh, this was, uh, leg- the legend of this bottle was the fact that I bought it at an estate sale for $90. Yeah. Still in the cellophane, still sealed up. Wow. Yeah. And normally this is a $350 bottle of, of uh, scotch. How much you pay for it? I just said $90. Damn. Yeah. So that, that was my estate sale deal of the century. And... I had taken it to cons, shared it out with some select people at cons, and I had like just a little bit left in one of my glass. I had decanted it into my uh, glass flask, and was kind of saving it for a special occasion. And this definitely qualified as said special occasion. I just recently learned from a video on TikTok the purpose of an infinity decanter, and apparently, you you probably already know all this. You know, apparently an infinity decanter is one of those glass bottles where you take the last so many ounces you have of something and you dump it in there. And every time you get down to the last so many ounces of bourbon or whatever, you dump it in there. And and by the time it's done, you have your own unique blend of the stuff that you drink all mixed together. And like everybody should have one apparently. Interesting. Yeah. So like that glass bottle that I'm looking at over the right over there, you should probably make that your infinity decanter. And if you have anything left, you dump it in there. And every time you get down to the last couple ounces, you dump it in there and, you, you know your last couple of shots or whatever. And then uh, over time, it all mixes together and turns into, you know, swill. <laughs> yeah, this is really good. I'm really enjoying this. This oh, is yeah. nice. It's not too harsh. It's, I'm not a big scotch guy, but yeah, this this stuff is... I don't know if I would ever go so far as to to pay $350 for another bottle of it. Man, $350 is a lot. <laughs> My normal break point on bourbon is $60. Like, the, the stuff that I could buy for $350, I could get a 3D printer and a couple of books. I could spend a whole lot of money on gaming stuff. I could buy a whole bunch of books for my show that I'll only read three quarters of them, maybe, and put them aside. <laughs> oh, my God. So, um, 
One of the books I've gushed on here about is uh, The Elusive Shift by John Pedersen. And that's about how the community of D&D players influenced the creation of D&D over from the start of Chainmail till it became a role-playing game. Uh, to the point, it was not TSR that coined the term role-playing game for D&D. It was the community started calling that, and then D&D picked it up. So he had wrote another book that released uh, like last week uh, called The Game Wizards that tells the story of the rise and fall of D&D, TSR, Gary Gygax, and Dave Arneson. And, oh my god, is it like some serious middle school two-kid drama between the two of them over this. If you really want to know the story behind D&D, this kind of gets into the per like the personalities and what happened between everybody. Um, TSR from it being one thing in Gary Gygax's house to them building their own facility in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And then it ends with the ambush at Sheridan Springs, the hostile takeover of TS TSR away from Gary Gygax, and all the steps that led up to that. But he wrote another book well before these two. One of his first books uh, was called Playing at Worlds. And this thing is a brick. It's a tome. It was meant to be a college-level textbook looking at the evolution of war games and role-playing games from like the various early beginnings and look at that with the critical eye of like a college-level textbook. Wow, they did okay. one print run of it. And I have been looking for a copy of it. Was that the one you said it's like super expensive to find everywhere? Oh, yeah. Something um, like that. Copies of it routinely sell on Amazon because you know how, like, if you ever look for an out-of-print book on Amazon, you yeah, can they find super expensive. You can find sellers selling them, but they're like three hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this was in that realm, and I have it as a saved search on eBay. Yeah. And because his new book came out, the old ones were selling, and they were selling pretty expensive. I had bid on one auction i bid it up to 75 dollars and i think the auction ended at 150. Uh, yeah i mean there's books that i'll buy for my show that are completely different topic oriented that easily go into that range but a lot of them are tomes on on various um esoteric subjects mm. we'll say and uh, it's not unusual for me to see books going for two three hundred dollars in the realm of the stuff that i deal with but even then I draw the line. Like there's right. this, um, there's a book, oh God, I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's this really cool book on Nordic magic and the la a brand new printing of it goes for about $325 and they're, they're very finely crafted with leather and you know, like I have a house that smells of many leather bound books and stuff, but my office know. smells of a rich mahogany. Yeah, yes. <laughs> kind of a big deal. But I, I see those prices and I'm kind of like, whoa. <laughs> you know, I'm like, do I really want this book that bad? So I had got an alert from one of my saved searches that a auction came up with a buy it now for this book that was autographed by the author for a hundred dollars. And you better believe I bought that thing as fast as my fingers could take it. Is this the big expensive book that you were talking about? This is the big So you got it. I got it. When did this happen? Last week. I was going to say, because last time I talked to you, I don't remember if it was at a fire or not. You were telling me about this book before and how expensive it was and everything. I, I would like to talk to this guy. I'm trying to reach out to him, email with him, and see if he can come on, especially after he just put out his new book. There's also... Another game author who just started a Kickstarter for a new RPG he's doing that I'm going to try and see if I can reach out to him to see if he, I can get him on the show. It's a little bit different for me because I'm a little bit longer in the tooth than you are. Mm -hmm. And I started playing these games when I was like 12. I, I remember when you could walk into the local large chain store. Like we have one called Meyer, And I remember when that store sold Dungeons and Dragons stuff. They sold Dungeons and Dragons books and things like that. And that was kind of like when it really started taking off. 
up until then you had to find like really out of the way hobby stores and things like that to be able to find those books. So it talks about that in uh, the Game Wizards. And the reason that happened was because in the rise of TSR, they signed a distribution deal with Random House. Mm -hmm. And Random House gave them access to the big box stores, Ah, to the regular bookstores. And that was one of the things that pushed D&D from something that's just into the hobby shop into everybody's public consciousness. Yeah, because we had to go to like really obscure, out-of-the-way hobby shops to find this stuff. It was still very much um, you. You had to go to. You had to know where to go, and they were always these out of the way places and stuff. And that you'd find BattleTech and and Dungeons and Dragons, of course. And then TSR. I remember they had this explosion of, of creativity, and you had games like Star Frontiers that come out, and and uh, Gangbusters, which was their mob role playing game. They they started coming out with role playing games for every kind of environment. Um, and then other companies started jumping on board and stuff. And, and this book tells you the backstory of that mm-hmm. of from a business standpoint what was going on who was writing what what they were trying to get to market at what times the whole legal battle between Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax over what constituted D&D and how, who contributed to what so yeah there's some really fascinating stuff in this book it's cool you got it, especially an autographed copy. Yeah, I know. For the price that you did, too. Yeah, yeah, that was that was super amazing. Um, it's one of the more expensive books in my rare book collection, but mm-hmm. I'm glad that it's in my rare book collection. I just like being able to say that I now have a rare book collection. That's kind of awesome. It's just funny to think, like, we're seeing it now with Marvel and comic books and stuff because of the prevalence of, of comic book movies and everything, but all of this, like, geek culture that we grew up with... And again, I'm older than you are. I'm I'm 50. I'll be 50 in May. When I was playing these games, you you probably weren't even you weren't even born yet, you know. <laughs> so it's cool to see like the backstory of all this stuff that that I grew up because when you're growing up, you, you just kind of take it for granted. You're like, yeah, this is Dungeons and Dragons, and these are cool little books and stuff like that. But then you when you get older and you look back, you're like, man, there's actually a history behind this. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. And that's what's drawing me to it is that I don't know if it's because now geek culture is so pervasive in regular culture. Yeah. But there is this movement to look at things like geek culture with the critical eye of a historian and go back and record the histories of it to preserve it for posterity. Yeah. Um, because yeah. especially with early D&D and with the book Elusive Shift, almost all of that information was recorded in fan newsletters or um, local role-playing group uh, newsletter publications that just maybe a hundred people got a hand-typed ditograph copy of. Yeah, little booklets that were stapled yeah. together. Yeah. And now there is a push to save those, digitize those, and make them accessible. Yeah. Like, now that I know that Bowling Green College has a library of pop culture where a lot of these things are stored, I really want to talk to somebody there. We could make a pretty because that's where the that's where the Dungeons and Dragons Museum is around there, isn't it? No, Dungeons and Dragons Museum's in in Lake Geneva, in the original house where the original TSR and Dungeon Hobby Shop were. Yeah, so we could easily go up to Wisconsin and just do a total total geek tour. Yeah, except Bowling Green yeah. is not in Wisconsin. No, but it's it's we could hit it, you know, in that area. You know, it's just it's it's one of the, like we could make a road. What I'm trying to say poorly is that we could make a nice little road trip out of all of this. Unfortunately, they used to do a convention in Lake Geneva specifically for old school D&D role playing. It was called GaryCon. Yeah. And it was kind of after uh, Wizards of the Coast took over D&D. And this was a push to do D&D the way it originally was. But uh, Ernie Gygax, Gary's son, took it over. and Kind um, of a douche. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of? kind of a douche. From what I've read? Yeah, he, uh, he's he been doing some douchey things lately, and it kind of has pushed a lot of people away from GaryCon. So we'll see how that plays out. That was where Gen Con... I, hell, I, I think I went to a Gen Con. God, when I was in my early teens, I had to be 14, and we went with a bunch of buddies, and my mom was like, yeah, go ahead and go. Looking back, I don't know how the hell my mom... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, so I can go to Wisconsin... With a bunch of people. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, we got kicked out of the hotel because we bought a whole bunch of Jello and dumped it into the hot tub. 
or I don't remember if we got kicked out or not. I don't remember. I was a kid. I was just yeah. like, yeah, sure, whatever. And it, it it was, I mean, it's not what Gen Con is now, but. No, it, it was, Gen Con was held in Lake Geneva till I want to say 87. Yeah, that sounds about right. 87 yeah. or 89 was when it outgrew yeah. uh, the facilities in Lake Geneva. And they had to uh, move it to uh, Milwaukee. Yeah, there's a lot of people that were pissed about that when it happened. And once it went to Wisconsin, Milwaukee, I kind of lost track of it. I, I mean, I heard you know rumblings and stuff as I was growing up because you grow up and you have kids and life happens and shit. And then um, after the kids started getting grown up and stuff, I got back into RPGs and tabletop gaming and stuff. And it, I got back into it at 3.0 Dungeons & Dragons is what I got back into well, it. Well, to bring this full circle... Uh, when Wizards of the Coast launched D&D 3rd Edition uh, was one of the last years they held Gen Con in Milwaukee. I went that year as a promotional thing. They invited Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson back. And I think that was the first time they had been back to Gen Con in many, many years. Because uh, basically after the whole ambush at Sheridan Springs... Gary Gygax was just done with D&D. He ended up even selling his stock in the yeah. company back to TSR and completely divesting himself of Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. It's one of those... It's like the story of Apple computers. You know, it's it's one of those kinds of stories. And that's that's what's cool about it because you don't realize... When, you, when, you're, when I was a kid, it was just a game, you know? And then we started playing when Marvel, you know, you know my love for the original Marvel superheroes game. Yep. Face rip. And when I look back at it now, uh, over the years, I look back and now that I've played many games over the years, I look back and I'm like, this is kind of a stupid game, but it's still fun to just sit down and just play a battle between superhero teams or what have you. Right. But all those games and stuff are coming out. You really didn't think about it back then. You're just like, yeah, there's this cool company. Here's all these games. Like TSR was my youth for many, many years, you know, for a long time. That was my escape. That was we would get together on Thursday nights or Friday nights, and we would sit and play like Temple of Elemental Evil or BattleTech or, or um, the original Gamma World. The Gamma World was a TSR game. You know, all of those old school original games and shit. And then you just don't really think about it. it I found myself maybe in my thirties, kind of being that kind of douchebag gatekeepery, and then I. I had to take a step back and be like, "No, dude, it's great." And yeah, this being, is what we wanted when we were yeah, younger. Yeah, this, this you know? is. This is the uh, this is the dream. Although I still fucking hate Pokemon players. <laughs> Deckers. I remember going to the convention and you had um, you had the guys in the hallways playing Magic the Gathering and so forth. You, you, there was this divide of, of people playing card games because that was a Magic was breaking big. Oh yeah, I remember. I was there. And you had people over playing Magic, and I remember like the tabletop people and the game game like they were like. The, the magic players are kind of looked down on, you know. Well, it's it's funny because like we used to we used to have the ladder of nerddom, and like at the, the people who thought they were the pinnacle of the ladder of nerddom were like the historical war gamers. Yeah. Those were the old school hardcore. Those people crust- are still weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I go to miniature conventions and interact with these people, and they are hardcore. Yeah. And then below the. Um, below the historical war gamers, you have the regular war gamers. Yeah. Then below the war gamers, you have the RPG crowd. Yeah. Below the RPG crowd, you have the card gamers. Below the card gamers, you have the LARPers. I gotta wonder, I think Pokemon and, like, well, Pokemon was the first real game, and then you had Yu-Gi-Oh! and stuff like that that came along, but Pokemon was kind of the game that, that was that generation's game that brought them into you know, mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. You know, once they started playing Pokemon, then they discovered other games and stuff that went along. And Magic also had something to do with it. But I think Magic players were like the old D&D players. Yeah, that- until maybe like... Because it was weird. Like, Magic was kind of like the high, they're the college coffeehouse crowd. Yeah, that was the upper level of, and, the, of, the, ta- the, of the card game people. Yeah, until, it, until about 5th edition... And then at that point, Magic had exploded and was really trying to broaden its appeal. Yeah. So they took out a lot of the more risque artwork. They added subtle things to the cards to make them more user-friendly. And in a true douchebag moment, that's when I said, Fuck it, man. This game's not cool anymore. I'm done. Well, I remember when Magic changed their artwork... 
And there was a big hubbub about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. About the artist being, and the artwork being changed. Because they'd used the same artists for years. And then all of a sudden they were like, nope, we're changing all the artwork now. We're changing the way we pay everybody. And there was a big, big kickback from the community of people like, what What are you doing? You know, this is, we've grown up with this stuff in this game. And now you're going and changing everything and you're commercializing it and so forth. Yeah. But Magic was well on the way to being commercialized at that oh, point. Oh, yeah. And, and then it was, then the pro tour came. Mm-hmm. Then it, it came to... Um, from one set a year and one expansion to now it's two base sets a year, yep. two expansion sets a year. So by the time you've just figured the set out and you know the cards and you've got your deck, here comes a new set and everything changes. So yeah. it was just the rules were always in this constant games state of flux. Um, well, I mean, Games Workshop didn't even do that until... I would say Wizards of the Coast probably did it first, and Games Workshop learned it from them. Yeah, I can't argue on that. But yeah, that's a good one, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, but going back to the Pokemon players, I remember distinctly standing in a very long line to get Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson's autograph, and these kids come up, and they're like, what's this line for? Oh, it's to meet Gary Gygax. Who's that? It's like get the fuck out of here, you little Pokemon. <laughs> well, they're kids. It's like, it's like they'll get. They, they probably got there eventually, yeah. you know. But yeah. you knew that. At least I knew. It's, it's different for me because I'm older. I'll say that again. But I knew that we had arrived when Gary Gygax's floating head arrived on Futurama. It was like wow, you know. I mean, it's like here's something major, a major cartoon, you know, a television show, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then and, and here's Gary Gygax's floating head, you know, and it's actually Gary Gygax being paid tribute to. And that's kind of the point of contention was that uh, Dave Arneson was always kind of the silent partner of making the D and D rules. Uh, he wasn't a very outgoing guy. He wasn't a very gregarious guy. But he came up with the idea of, hey, let's take people and run them through dungeons. Mm -hmm. He created the first dungeon. He created the idea of your characters gaining experience and getting better the more things they did. Mm -hmm. So he created a lot of the solid concepts for what we understand as D&D. But he was very much an idea guy. He was a guy who would have a ton of ideas, like a hundred pages of notes, and then Gary Gygax would take that, edit it down, rewrite it, make it an understandable product that you could publish into a book. Yeah, but that's how that's how good companies work. Right, exactly. Now but, the problem comes when somebody when they don't when each person doesn't get their due credit or whatever. And that's what it know? started to be. It was Arneson started to resent that more and more Gary Gygax became TSR. And as he became the public face for TSR, it became Dungeons and Dragons, published by TSR, written by Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Then it was Gary Gygax, TSR, and then very small. And then on the first page in Thanks, it's, oh, also rules also written by Dave Arneson. And it was just jealousy that Gary Gygax... I understand that. <laughs> yeah, it was jealousy that Gary Gygax became the public face of D&D. And as the media took notice of D&D, it was never Gary Gygax, co-creator of D&D. It was Gary Gygax, creator of D&D. Gary Gygax, father of role-playing. Yeah, but is that so much Gary Gygax's fault? Because he was the one... Like, If they had both gone out there... I'm sure if the other guy had made himself more prominently known and done more interviews and put himself more out there, like, like it's like this show, like me and you, like I, this is your show. I'm here for so you. So it's, no, but because you can, you can still be in the spotlight and acknowledge your co-creators. Yeah. Um, but Gary Gygax didn't do that. He ah. fell in love with his own image ah, and okay. he fell to the dark sh- side of the Schwartz. He started buying into his own his own exactly. Stuff. Yeah. He he started yeah, that's getting, dangerous. He started getting high on his own supply, and that was what in in the end lost him the company because he wasn't a good manager. He was a good writer, but he wanted to be in control. He wanted to be the one at the helm. He wanted the prestige of being able to say he was chairman of the board. That yeah. all decisions had to go through him that he was the one and that's in the kind of like here huh no i'm kidding I'm, i really i'm kidding i am <laughs> uh, i've got my own spotlight to deal with so and i'm i'm not yeah <laughs> but uh yeah it's, 
see that's it's the backstories and stuff like that that you never think about when you're when you're 13 years old rolling up a cleric you know a half elf cleric you don't you don't think about all of that stuff and then boom you know later on it's it all it's still it's, it's all what happens you know mm -hmm. so i remember when gary gygax actually passed away i think there was something gen con did everybody did something special for him in the in the gaming community and I, I remember Gen Con did something special for him, but I can't remember exactly what the hell it was. So anyhow, let's fast forward to what's going on now with the other guy. Um, <laughs> this tells you how bad I am. I can't remember the guy's name right now. I'm already slipping on his name. But so, like, where does he stand in the grand scheme of things? Is he finally getting his recognition now? or Well, there was a lot of lawsuits, and he basically gave up. Because this sounds a lot like an Apple computers kind of situation with Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs and, you know, all, all those kinds of situations. After the lawsuit, they did have to settle that he was, they had to make, like, his name as co-creators of D&D. &D. They had to pay him royalties on everything D&D &D because the basis of the game was rules that he helped design. Mm-hmm. Um, in time, especially after Gary Gygax left TSR, they kind of tried to mend their friendship to the point where Wizards of the Coast brought them both in together again at Gen Con. Fortunately, they both passed right about the same time. But a lot of what he wanted was recognition of his peers, and a lot of his peers definitely knew his place in the standing. Yeah. Um, and that's what it was, is he felt that by not getting his credit, it hurted his chance to do other work, which was one of his big complaints. Um, I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can totally, I can totally get that, you know, that doesn't sound surprising to me at all. You know, he should get his credit or what, ha you know, whatever he should, he should be recognized for what he did. Although I will say there was a anecdote they said where, uh, there was an award show one year, uh, put on by uh, Origins or Gamma, one of the other uh, entities. And it was after he had split from TSR, but before the lawsuit. And they were giving away awards, and D&D &D won a couple of awards. And what happened with one of them was for best role-playing game. He ran up there, took the award, and because he was one of the creators of D&D, &D, so he should have it. And then just held on to it and never gave it back. <laughs> because Man. he felt if they were awarding for the game then the person who created the game not the publisher of the game should get it yeah i get that yeah i i, I can see that as well yeah yeah i mean it's a little childish but you know I, I, well you know at what point do you take sides i don't yeah. know and, and then that's one thing with the book it's like you wanna you wanna feel compassion and you wanna you want to be like, oh, I, I can see this. But then you realize they're both just terrible. They're both uh. childish. They're both just like two schoolyard bullies. Or I, I shouldn't say bullies, but two schoolyard rivals who are trying to get their friends to, like, Arneson in interviews called it the Great War. And he was constantly thinking about it as a war and trying to manipulate other people in the industry against Gary Gygax and to like pull people away from TSR and doing all this like really kind of 12th grade drama. You know what though? I've been in situations where I've had to deal with things like that. So I, I can, I, I can relate to it. <laughs> so, yeah, I get it. I do. I really do. <laughs> but I don't know, man. You just let it go, I guess. Did you want to move on to Dune? Because we've got a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we both did on, not opening day, but the day after Friday, we both did finally get to see Dune in the theaters. Mm -hmm. And it was exactly as glorious as all the hype had led it up to be. This was the treatment Dune deserved. Now, I will preface... I will slightly disagree on that, right, but I'll right, get to hold, it. Hold on, because first we're going to preface. Dune has been published for over 50 years. There are no spoilers. It's like The Hobbit. You can't spoil The Hobbit. By the time The Hobbit movies came out, the book had been written 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. If you, haven't, if you don't know the story of Dune, if you don't know the story of the movie, fuck you at this point. Whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, spo no spoiler alerts. It's already been spoiled. Yes. 
It it was oh my god, like everything from the cinematography to the costumes to the sets to the like f- the CG of the locations. It was just gorgeous. It was a very beautiful movie, and I'm very glad that I watched it at an IMAX. When it was an IMAX, we saw it at. We yeah, saw it, it's their big. Yeah. We saw it on the best screen we could without going to IMAX, digital and everything. It, it was it was an absolutely beautiful movie. I rewatched it, part of it, with my wife tonight. And I said, do you understand now why I wanted to go see it at the movie theater? And she said, yeah. Because, like, the starships and stuff, everything's just massive scale. Oh, yeah. And you have to see it on the big screen to I'll, truly appreciate also, it. Also, I have to say, I am fucking loving the idea that it's on HBO Max. Because since, in addition to seeing it at the movie theaters, I've also watched it at home twice. Yeah, I'm, I'm halfway through watching it at home right now. Um, um, and douchebag move on my part, even though we had agreed to go see it together. Yep. Thursday, the day before our movie showing, as soon as it dropped on HBO Max, I watched it. I am flipping off John right now yeah. for people at home. But I had, I had a very specific reason was because yeah. I wanted to be able to watch it with subtitles. Um Especially nowadays, my hearing isn't as great. Yeah. So um, sometimes in movies, you'll get where the background noise is really fucking loud. And then the characters are talking, and it's a very, very quiet talk. And it's like, what the fuck are they saying? And there were points, there was a couple of points in the movie where the music kind, there was things going on, like when they first arrived on Arrakis, the background music and all the stuff that was going on almost drowned them out sometimes. And I, there was a few times in the movie where I'm like, what? And I had to like pay real close attention to what was going on. And when me and my wife were watching it tonight, she kept moving the volume up and down at certain points. Yeah. So that's that was why I wanted to watch it beforehand with subtitles so mm-hmm. I could get all of those subtle cues out and then just watch it and kind of not have to listen to the exact dialogue to just kind of be able to take in the spectacle of it. Mm-hmm. And and I really, I think that really helped. It was everything that I wanted it to be. The, the direct, they could not have picked a better director to do this movie. Yeah. Um, it was not, because I've, I've already seen two versions of, I mean, I saw the original David Lynch one, then I saw the Sci-Fi Channel one. Which I did like both of them, but I liked them both for different reasons. And then this came along, and there were things in, like the the other move. The other movies were they tried to make it direct from the book to the movie as much as possible, and it just doesn't work. Some of that stuff just doesn't work in the movie. Like in the original David Lynch, when I remember going to the movie theater and they handed you a pamphlet with all of the terms and all. Like I'm like, we get a fucking book on the way into the movie. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And then when they did the Sci-Fi Channel one. The Sci-Fi Channel one was done as a miniseries, and it was better. But you like they really didn't show like um, like Paul's home planet with all the water and stuff. They they alluded to it was a water planet and stuff like that. But they had the budget constraints and so forth. But again, they tried to do another direct from book port to movie, and it just doesn't work. Whereas this movie, they altered what they needed to alter to a point to where if you weren't a Dune aficionado, like if you weren't a super Dune fan like us who've read the books and have seen all the incarnations, if you were somebody walking off the street, like they made it to a point to explain what the Kwisatz Haderach was, but they didn't dwell on it. They they brought it up, I think, once or twice in the movie, and they briefly, real quickly, yeah, that's what this is, blah, 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 blah. Right. And they moved on. It's the same thing they did with uh, the most recent incarnation of Spider-Man. Yes, we, we all know, know the, the Spider-Man yeah. origin story. We've seen it before in movies. We don't need to retell the yeah, Spider-Man origin story. We don't need to see story. Peter Parker getting bit by a spider Yeah, we, again. we don't need to see Uncle Ben um, dying. And that's what one of the things I noticed about this. You see Thufuir Hallett, and it's mentioned, I think, that he's a Mentad, but they yeah. never tell you what a Mentad is. Yeah, I had to explain that, and I had to explain what the Bene Gesserit were right. to my wife. But um, they do explain in the movie what the Bene Gesserit were. Right after I explain it to her, they make it a point to explain it. But they never explain what a Mentat and stuff is that I know of. They, I don't they never... I will say they didn't explain what Dr. Yue was, that he was a, or a souk school doctor, and why it was such a huge deal that he was the one who betrayed the Duke. Yeah. Because it was impossible for them to betray their charges. Yeah. But a lot of that stuff, though, they did away with it very well. Right. You didn't need to know that backstory to and still enjoy this. They did a very good job of editing out what they could to keep the movie flowing to somebody who wasn't. They explained what they had to explain. They did a good job of explaining it. I did like the guy that played Paul a lot better than the previous incarnations of Paul. He really did seem like he was a kid, but he was very smart. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that 
was lost in all the other movies was that Paul was a kid. Yeah. It's a big deal that he's taking this on as essentially a 15-year-old or 16-year-old. Where they stopped the movie at was a great spot to stop it at because there's a time jump that happens in the book where a couple of years later he he actually goes out and he has kids which get murdered by the Harkonnen and so forth because there's a big point in the book where for years you know the Harkonnen come back and the Fremen are fighting him and stuff. And then it just picks up later on in his life at that point where he's more established with the Fremen and so forth. Because when he comes back, he's going to be more aged. He'll be more of the age that he was in the books where the book picks up the time that's jump. Where where they cut it isn't where the time jump happens. I know, I get that. There's, so I'm there's wondering, still a lot of stuff that has to happen before the time jump. I get that, but I, I think that stuff has already been filmed and is waiting there to be used. That's yeah. very clever editing. So... Um, it, it, but it would make sense that they did it. Well, another point is where do you, where do you cut, you know, you're already in three hours in at that point. So where do you, what point do you cut this? Yeah. I actually think they cut it at a good part. Yeah, um, exactly. Because that's definitely a turning point of the story is it goes from them basically just fleeing, uh, Arakeen yeah. and into the desert to now they have been accepted by the Fremen. Now they are part of the Fremen, uh, CH and, then he from there it's not the story of him fleeing it's the story of him becoming, becoming a leader yeah. yeah um see the thing about this is my only thing about dune is sci-fi did it in one aspect they did it right where they made it a miniseries and for them to properly in my opinion to be able to tell the dune the dune story properly it needs to be something like a game of thrones kind of thing where it's done in multiple seasons to really get the full effect of the story because you have you have multiple houses. There's all kinds of backstory. There's things that they could weave into this, but it needs to be a longer format because, like I was telling my wife, you really can't you can't really do Dune in a span of of one even two movies. I question. You know, they might need three, but I I, I can see why they they don't want to make that story into three movies. Can it hold people's interest that long? Again, as I said, there's no spoilers here. Everybody knows how this story goes. Right. Whereas if they were to do it as like a Game of Thrones, um, Westworld kind of, of miniseries where it has seasons and it tells the story more in depth, they could do it closer to the book and still tell a much more enriched story. But this is all we're going to get. And they did the best they could, I think, with what they had. Like everything about it was solid. There wasn't really much that I didn't like about it. I, I liked the updated, like the ornithopters looking like dragonflies were very cool. I have exactly one complaint with the movie. Yeah, you were mentioning that, but you never talked about it. We said to like, save it here. Yeah, save it here. Is that I don't know if it was a specific decision by the director or the actor, but oh my God, what the hell was going on with Jessica? Like, Every scene, it's like she's on the verge of tears. She's having a mental breakdown. The camera cuts away, and then she's like a stone-faced killer. It's like she spent half the movie, especially if you watch the subtitles, it's like Jessica weeping, Jessica sad, Jessica weeping. It's just like she's not like that in the book. In the book, she's very calculated. She weeps for Leto when he dies, and she's concerned when... Uh, Paul I has disagree. to kill Jameis. But like for the rest of it, it's like, oh my God. I don't think she becomes more calculated until she joins up with the Fremen, from what I remember. No. I, like, I, I will hold, I will reserve judgment on that opinion until the next movie comes out. Because if she's still that way, then I'll, then I'll probably have the same bitch that you do. I'll have the same gripe. Because the, 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 well, the way that they did the movie... It shows the impression. Again, we're different. We know the story. You know, I, I, I've read, I read Dune like every year, every two years, I'll go back and reread that book. Um, and I'll read Children of Dune. I'll, I'll, I'll read the first three and I'll, I'll go through the whole thing. I'm actually listening to um, the uh, the Benny Gesserit book right now. I'm listening to it on audiobook. But I'll go back and listen to him and stuff. And um, like what they're doing in the movie, they, they, okay, I'll, I'll grant you this. You, you are right to an extent um, where in the movie they're trying to portray her as, oh, shit, I fucked up. I was supposed to have a daughter and I, I have a son and everybody's pissed at me and it goes against everything that she's ever been taught. They've all, you know, they drilled into her head, have a daughter, have a daughter. And she decides right. to have a son. And 
Whereas the other two movies, they were like they they penned out. You did this because you love you loved your Duke, right? In this movie, they really don't address that. They just say you had a son, and they make it look they make it sound like you had a son because you thought you could produce the Quasats Hatterack. right? Whereas um, in the books, it was like you had a son because your husband wanted a son. Why did you do that? Fuck what your husband wants. This is what we want. You know, right? Um, but not to cut you off, there is one line in the movie that kind of redeems it because he's talking to Jessica and he says, I'm not talking to Jessica. I'm talking to the Benny Gesserit. Will yeah. you take care of our son? You know, and he, cause he, he knows what's going on. He calls her out on it. And I was like, that was pretty cool. Cause that wasn't in the book and that wasn't in the other two movies. Because it, like her husband knows what's going on, but he's like, are you going to look out for our son? Cause that's one of the, the big side plots in the book is the fact that nobody knows really as far or nobody knows that dr yui was the betrayer yeah because baron harkonnen kills him right away yeah um because he doesn't want anybody else to know that the souk school people can be turned turned yeah the only reason he was is because they, they had his wife right so every in the original book everybody thinks jessica's the traitor exactly to the point where uh duncan almost uh, kills her <laughs> Dun- duncan tries to kill her yeah gurney tries to kill her Thufweer starts working with the Harkonnen because he's that pissed yeah. off at Jessica and working against her. I think they'll gloss over. I think the only one is, is I think you're, you're only going to see that again when, um, what's his name shows back up. Yeah. When Gurney shows back up. Yeah. When up. Gurney shows back up, I think they're going to do it with that, but the rest of the stuff they'll leave out of it because it's just, it's like, all right, we've already got one person that's pissed off. How many people do we need? They're going to, they'll edit that out to save time. Because mm-hmm. it'll still it'll still send the same message. Oh man, can you imagine when we get the like four and a half hour director's cut of this? I, you know what, it's got to be out there because there's scenes that were in the previews that weren't in the movie where where Paul's talking to. Oh yeah, when he's talking to um, uh, the head reverend mother, the head reverend Gaius Mohayim. The Reverend Mother Guy's behind. Yeah, and he, he's like, well, my father's rich. And she's like, well, he's going to lose that planet. He'll lose or that no, planet, too. My father, that was cut out of it. Yeah, my father rules a whole planet. Yeah. He'll lose it. He's getting a more powerful one. He'll lose He'll that lose one, that too. too. Yeah, that wasn't in the movie at all. And I'm yeah. kind of bummed that wasn't in there. So I, I, you know that there's got to be other stuff out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you just know that there is. And, and when that hits, when that hits, I'm definitely going to be buying it and watching it. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, I can't, I can't be bothered for the next three days. I'm watching Dune. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like the extended cut of Lord of the Rings because there is that fandom there for it. You know, if they come out with it, it's gonna. It's yeah. That reminds me, I have not sat down and watched the extended cut of the Lord of the Rings in a long time. I should do that one of these days. What's funny is when they made the extended cut of The Hobbit, and it was like you've already taken a book and stretched it out ridiculously long. How much more can you make an extended cut of The Hobbit, and why? <laughs> you've already put so much bloated stuff into these movies. When I when I worked at the hotels, I made a bet with somebody that when we were going to sit down and that I could read The Hobbit faster than he could watch all three movies back-to-back. Because mm-hmm. I think the original The Hobbit's only like 250 pages. It's not a big it's, book. Yeah, no. It's not a big book. No, it's not. Um, so, yeah. but the other thing about the movie I did notice is unlike other incarnations of it, we don't see the emperor. We hear him mentioned a lot. We have conversations about it, but we don't see the emperor in the first movie. Whereas the previous incarnations, you saw the emperor real quick right. in the story. But in the book, you don't see the emperor till he shows up at the end. Yeah. Well, he's mentioned again uh, and stuff like that, but you also have like, there was the arena fight with, uh, the Baron Harkonnen's younger nephew, the one that Sting played in the movie. Oh, um... Um, Fayed? Uh, Fay Routha. Yeah. You don't, you, we don't see him in this movie. Whereas in the other two incarnations, we see him pretty much from the, because it was Sting, of course. Right. Well, and, so. and that's, and in the book, Faye Routha is uh, like very early in the book. Like yeah. you see him plotting with Baron Harkonnen. Yeah. Um, and there was also the banquet where Paul meets the emperor's daughter. And uh, they didn't do that in the David Lynch version, but they did that in the sci-fi version. And that also happens in the book. They briefly meet at the beginning because that's how Paul knows who she is. Because he mentions it in, in the last movie. He's like, well, I'll, I'll tell the emperor that I'll marry his daughter and give him an heir to the throne because he doesn't have an heir to the throne. They're like, he doesn't care about that. He wants you dead. Right. So, But that's how Paul knows about the emperor's daughter and so forth. But they, uh, they kind of edited that out of the movie, too. 
again, it's clever editing. And, and one of the reasons why I think they did it is it's, it's also good storytelling. Like in Star Wars, you had characters that showed up in the second movie and characters that showed up in the third yeah. movie and so forth. So when the second movie pops up, then these new players are going to come into the game, you know? Right. Um, so it, it, all, all around, it was very wise decisions in re-storytelling. And I'm, I'm happy with what they edited out, and I'm happy with how they retold the story. Like, there was another line in there where he's like, where uh, he's like, I'm not in the mood for fighting right now. And he says, moods in the book and in the other incarnations of the movies, he says, well, moods are something for lovemaking and horseback riding. They didn't use that same terminology in here. But he's like, no, you got to fight now or I'm going to beat your ass. You know, that kind of a deal. Right. Or uh, uh, when he like or when he says, uh, I'm not in the mood for it. Play it. Play a song. Yeah. Because uh, alluding to that Gurney Halleck always is playing the guitar and singing songs. Yeah, and uh, we never saw that at all. And here, I, I, will, I will say, I didn't expect it. The Balisset, I think it was called? Yeah, the Balisset. Yeah. Um, but I was totally on board for Atreides Bagpipes. That was cool. That was, that was like, cool. Now, the other thing that freaked me out was, what was up with, like, you didn't, like, the bullheads. I don't remember the bulls being the, the house of Trades and the bull being in the books at all. And I don't remember in the previous incarnations in the movie whatsoever. Oh yeah. 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 That, that's a big thing. It was, uh, in the bank, in the main hall of the Atreides is one side of the dining room was the, uh, the portrait of Leto's father. Yeah. And the other, <laughs> the other side was the head of the bull that killed him. See, I don't remember those, and I don't remember any of that in the books, and I don't remember it in the previous incarnations. Yeah, he he died bullfighting because, um, I I think in the in the uh, originally the Atreides were supposed to give off more of like a Spanish Portuguese vibe, mm-hmm. um, but in then they made the choice here to go very Scottish, mm-hmm. um, and like I said, I'm totally down for that. Um, but yeah, so it was uh, Leto's father died in a bullfight. But he had the head of the bull mounted, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it, it it hung in the hall right across from his picture. You also didn't see you you briefly saw them, but you didn't see the spacer guild like in the other movies. They had the big tank that comes in with the uh, you know the floating slug inside of it. You know, the, right. you know, you didn't well, see any of that. You I did bo- see the spaceships, but you never got to see them fold space or whatever. Just no. boom, the ship was there. They're leaving it. Um, so I was like, eh, that kind of bummed me out. It would have been cool to see them folding space and stuff. But again, I think they did, but you just didn't catch it because the ship is a giant like tube. Yeah. And in one of the shots, you look through the tube of the spaceship and it looks like there's a different system on the other side. Ah, so the like tube the is ship, the ship. Okay. Yeah. Like the ship folds like, space by you enter one side and you come out the other. Ah, okay. So the ship has to. Do you have to be two ships to be able? Okay. Or just the ship exists temporarily in two places at one time. Yeah. Um, so they made a big deal in the other movies of of showing them how they fold space and you know all that stuff because there was a part in the book. But they do. Sh- I believe they do show the spacers. Well, they do very briefly when he shows up to say, "All right, you're taking over Arrakis." Right, when, when and they're the, in the tanks in the background, like the suits with the big, huge bubbles yeah, on them. The, yeah. Uh, the hair and that was so cool. Like him showing up in essentially bishop's robes, yeah, as the the herald of the change and, and all that. I don't recall it being quite that way in the other books either, or in the, in the other movies either. I don't remember that happening that way. Uh, and and for the record, I'm already pricing out replica uh, signet rings on Etsy. Oh my god! <laughs> Fuck yeah! Oh man, um, the. Uh, the whole um the whole contrast of the water planet versus dune they did a very they did a very good job of that like the space there's so much about this movie there's so much of the grandness that was oh that dude, was amazing like to, to the point where the window like when they're in the palace on arrakis the way the windows are mm-hmm. where it's this very long window so that air can come in but the direct sunlight can't yeah or that it's a vertical shaft mm-hmm. so that the light only comes in when it's directly ahead and then it's just kind of an angled light. Mm-hmm. The way the there's uh, those stone doors that close. Yeah, we have to close the doors because the sun's getting too high. Right. And then right. Paul's just walking around outside. He's like, hello. He's like, you shouldn't be out here. You're going to die of heat stroke. And he's right. like... Yeah, what's what's up with these trees? You know, yeah. Th- that was the thing. That was one of the things I liked about this version of Paul. He was still 
like the, the previous version, well, maybe the Sci-Fi Channel, not so much, but the original David Lynch version, he just didn't seem like a 15-year-old kid. You know, he no. didn't see, he, he knew like, he was very, I don't know, it just didn't seem right. You know, whereas this one, he was still, he was very smart. Like he would call his, he called his mom out a couple of times, like right off the bat. He's like, yeah, I know what's going on here. I know you did this and blah, blah. Right. And, but he was still also very much a child and very curious, like the way he sat and like how he got his information and sitching and watching the hollow tapes and all that kind of stuff. Right. Which is also an ingenious way of telling the story, to give backstory to the story. Exactly. So that's, that's, I thought I go back to, they did really clever things to tell the story without having, like in the original Doom where everybody was talking in whispers, like you heard their thought in whispers and stuff. And it was like, you know, I I get it. It It was David Lynch and it was weird and shit like that, but there's there was neat little ways that they told the story without forcing it down your throat or whatever right you know? but it was my wife would ask me a question and i'd be like oh yeah blah 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 blah. and then like a scene and a half later they would kind of explain what i just explained to her mm-hmm. the only thing i had to explain to her like i didn't know if they explained what the benny jesuit were so i kind of explained it and then they actually did explain it but they never explained what the mentats were and i had to explain to her there's a reason there's no thinking computers in here because a computer a, a war against the machines took place and blah 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 like the doctor thing i didn't explain it to her she just kind of figured out that this guy could put his hands on people and you know and do whatever you know so but again, it was it was very clever storytelling. The only problem is I could still see where somebody who's not as much Dune versed as we are, I was worried that people would go and not knowing any better would still have a hard time with this movie, you know, not understanding everything that was going on in it. So she, my, because my was like, why are they why are they leaving this planet to go to the desert? When I'm like, because they're in charge of it. It was it was put under their care, so they have to yeah. pack up and leave and go there. You know? I will say I was also kind of disappointed in uh, Baron Harkonnen. Really, I liked him a lot. I he liked that version. He didn't seem as menacing as previous versions of it, or as calculating. He he's even kind of bored with it. He reminded me of Apocalypse Now. Do you remember? Do you remember Apocalypse Now? Do you remember Marlon Brando, the big? You know, he was yeah. really fat, and he came across that way to me. And I think that we're going to see more of him in the second movie. Yeah. Where this one, they had to, because of the time constraints and the storytelling, they had to back off and let Paul's character develop it's, more. It seems like... Um, like Batista make, had they, it down. Yeah, they, they, make it, they make it almost seem like that it's the Emperor who is the, the person behind all these things. But in the books, it's very much, it's Baron Harkonnen who set everything in motion and is using the emperor's jealousy to as a tool as a tool for him yeah to get rid of the house of trades because right. there's a big bloodline feud that goes back hundreds of years with those right. with those two, 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 two right. families yeah um, yeah um but again because the emperor is not present and they don't they don't cover it that way but again me see me and you will know that me and you know that but the average person that's not a dune dune aficionado like we are is they're just going to go in and see they go okay yeah all right well the emperor like is even in star wars you didn't see the emperor show up and, until you know the empire strikes back right so that's kind of what they're pulling here the emperor is going to show up um I, I didn't mind the baron though I, I i don't know i didn't i didn't mind him i i think he'll get his moment in the sun as time goes on um they had uh, that's probably another reason why they didn't put the emperor they didn't want to over clutter it with too many characters right so i think that's probably why they left it out and why they're doing things the way that they are but realistically i mean did it did it ruin the movie for you no yeah it didn't ruin it for me either i I didn't really put a lot of thought into that yeah so but i think this is a good point to segue into because this is our one year anniversary special and we were just talking about the characters I think it's time to muppet this movie. Yeah, it's we we did make a promise at the start of all this that we were going to do this with more movies, and we really haven't. We just haven't done it that much as much as we should have. So, um, I'm coming into this dry. I had no idea that you were going to pull this card, so I'm I'm not really prepped to do this. So I'm just going to go off the hip and see what I can do here. Okay, I, I have some that, that may seem a little weird, but I think they're solid choices. We have to have one human character, though. Remember right. That. So, so I have my human character is going to be Cheney. Uh, hmm. And I think it's going to make a little more sense when I tell you who's playing Paul. All right, go for it. Gonzo. Gonzo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I don't know. I would expect the Kermit Miss Piggy thing. Oh, no. 
Oh no 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 no! There's a whole wait. Wait till you get to it. There's a oh man. No. Okay, and, and specifically right. because I'm on board for the it, ride. It, Let's it, go. It subverts that, but like Gonzo is the one who's always trying to be better. He's the one who's always trying to be the the best performer. Do all these crazy things and schemes, but he's also very childlike at it. So it makes sense to for him to be Paul, and then you could totally see like. I can see him, him as young it, Paul, but I can't see him as older Paul. Him being the little young scared thing and like having these sweet moments with Chaney and, and her being the real person. <sighs> but then because he does like all the crazy like motorcycle riding stunts and stuff. Yeah. So then when he becomes Muadib, then he's still like now he's a badass. So, yes. I just can't see Gonzo as a badass. Oh, oh, I can't. I can't see it, but okay, you know, I'll respect that decision. Um, the only person I, I'm having trouble coming up with is uh, Jessica, but that's just because there's not a lot of... Oh, the female chick from the band. N- no, what I'm actually thinking of is in the Muppet show, there was a, a matronly woman who was the uh, costume designer, and I can't remember her name. I don't know, but she was like the old la- the old lady who did the costumes, and I think she would be good for Jessica because she had that motherly instinct. Well, um, there's only so many female Muffets. Yeah, there so is. Who's gonna play? Who's gonna play the Reverend Mother then? The grand the grandmother mother. Oh, the the Reverend Gaius Mohaim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that could be uh, Jane from the band. I don't know, man. Jane's Put too much of a hippie. Put your hand in the box, man. Oh God! Now that you say it that way, but she's not. She Jane's not bitchy like the way that you know that 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 woman was. I don't know. I I still I I still stand behind my decision that she'd make a better Jessica. No. All right, but we'll agree to disagree on that one. But go all ahead. Right, all right. Lado, Kermit. Who? I don't know. I don't see Kermit as being that responsible and putting that much presence forward. I'm not sure where I would put, I would probably put Kermit in the Paul position. But it's because Kermit make... can be the childish, but Kermit can also be the leader. So until I tell you who's playing Baron Harkonnen. <sighs> oh, Sam? Nope. Okay, who? Piggy. Piggy plays Hark Paul. Oh. Mm. I I initially thought of her as Raban. She's bitchy enough to do it. Yeah, I originally thought of her as Raban, but then it's like, no, if I make her Kermit and like her jealousy over Kermit being with like Jessica, yeah, it's starting to sink in, isn't it? I could see the gluttony aspect of Miss Piggy doing it. I also respect the sex flip, the the whole sex change uh, thing there. I, I respect that. I could probably buy that. Yeah, because she's bitchy enough to be the Baron Harkonnen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, could, I could see that. Yeah, I could see her floating in the air, you know. Rah, 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 rah. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I, I'm on board for that one. Yeah. Uh, Duncan Idaho, animal. Ooh. The, the scene where Duncan's fighting in the hallway with the side of yeah. car and just animal going ape shit. Yeah. Yeah. But the dynamic between between Gonzo and Animal doesn't quite work there. Well, you got to remember it's a Muppet movie, so things aren't perfect. Some... I could see I could see Animal being Raban. No, uh, honestly, Raban. I have Sweetums. Okay. I, the, okay, the giant monster guy. I will to bounce back to Dune real quick. I will say that Batista does add more life to that character yeah. by far. It it's he you wouldn't it's so hard to believe how subtle he can be. Mm-hmm. Like just the idea of how much menace he can put into his persona mm-hmm. with no words. And just that like just that that shit kicker walk he can do. Mm-hmm. Um he he really really does have range and he does it's, a, it's he breathed a lot of new life because that character was kind of boring before it was just a fat guy that was the you know the, the, uh, you know the baron's little cousin or it was whatever. one of one of the baron's nephews yeah it was one of the baron's nephews and it was kind of like all right whatever and then the, like when you see the head pop up on the platter you're like oh but now because he puts so much life in that character if they do the scene where his head pops up on the planter in front of the emperor 
you know, it's gonna like, ooh, it's gonna it's gonna feel more because he's got more life into that character. Right. Back to the Muppets though. But okay. um yeah, okay. Uh, Thufwear how or Thufwear Hellet, uh Professor Bunsen Honeydew. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um for Gurney, that's where I have Sam the Eagle. That would be a perfect fit. That yeah. would be a, a perfect fit, yep. For, uh Layet Kynes is gonna be Fozzie Bear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Oh um, my um, god! The sad thing is, I'm, envis- I'm envisioning these. I'm envisioning these characters. Let me get in front of the microphone. I'm envisioning yeah. these characters in my head as you're saying them and how they're going to work. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. Now I had two choices for Stilgar, and I'm still kind of flip flopping. But I, I think the more I think about it, the more I think I have the right choice. Is that uh, Rolf is Stilgar? Because mm. Stilgar is one of those guys who is very he's, he's not pa- or he's not shown to emotions. He's a very even keel leader. He he he's very sl- keeps his own counsel and speaks when it has gravitas. And Rolf kind of gives that off. Um, I'll agree with that. And I'll also say that the casting of Stilgar in this version of Dune is far superior to the other ones. Oh my God. Sure. Javier Bardem. Like I read an interview with, uh, Jason Momoa and he said the scene where, um, Stilgar comes to see the Duke, mm-hmm. he, fe- he's like, I felt like the newest greenest person because mm-hmm. I am in that scene with Oscar Isaac. I'm in that scene with Josh Brolin and I'm seeing that scene with Harvey R. Bardem. And it's just like, holy fuck, do I not have the acting chops to be in this league? You know what though? Momoa did really like, I've, I've not, Momoa's okay. I didn't really care about much an iron, an Aquaman because I just, I didn't feel that he could be a lead character, but he did really well in this movie. Like, yeah. and the other thing is like, you could tell that he really took it seriously and he was a hardcore geek into this movie. So we've got Piggy as Baron Harkonnen, we've got Sweetums as Raban, and then uh, as Piker, the Baron's Mentat, mm-hmm. uh, I have uh, Beaker for him. I was going to say, Beaker would be great. Yeah. Beaker would be, and he would have to talk that way, too. Me, 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 And everybody would know what he was saying, too. Like, yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be... But I'm, I'm looking at my list. The only person I didn't think about was, I didn't pick somebody for Dr. Yue. Hmm... I think maybe one of like the evil Muppets, like that evil dragon-looking Muppet. I think I think he would do it. He would do a good job. Where do Statler and Waldorf fall in? Well, they would probably pop up in Dune too. I I was actually going to have Statler and Waldorf like as a pair be the emperor. Hmm. But you'd have to have both of them. You know how in in uh, Muppet Christmas Carol they made Statler and Waldorf Jacob Marley. Yeah. So it would be, he'd be the emperor. Uh, they would be the emperor. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, that would work. That would work. Yeah, because they'd just be total assholes the whole time. Right. Yeah. I, the only thing I would, the only thing I would, I would, I would leave Paul as the character playing Paul now. I would leave him a human. That'd be about the only thing I would, I think I would change up in your thing. Um because I again, I really like the kid that plays Paul. He does a fantastic job with it. He would be the only human I would leave in it. But I think most of your decisions are pretty solid. I could see it happening that way. Yeah. Yeah. That would work. So yeah, I can't think of. Um, did we miss any of the major characters? Well, there's the Fremen ones, but we're talking about Dune One. We haven't gotten into two yet. The only other named Fremen is Jameis. Well, there's the ecologist too. That's Liet Kynes. Yeah. So that's um, that's that's Fozzie. Oh, that would be another good pick for me for for Janice, like the the hippie, you know, the the, the hippie ecologist of the planet. Yeah, man, Spice Rose here, man. Yeah, I'm not part of your war, man. Yeah, you know, you know, that's not too bad. We we, we could do we could do Janice as as Liet Kynes. Um. Yeah, that'd be a better fit for her, because I just don't see her being bitchy enough to be a Benny Gesserit, or the head of the Benny Gesserit. <laughs> have Fozzie be the be- the head of the Benny Gesserit. Just have her dressed up in woman's clothing? Yeah. <laughs> Playing a woman? 
<laughs> and, and just completely doing it like it's a bet. What about the, what about one of Gonzo's chickens? <laughs> oh no 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 no! You see, because it's going to be the mass battle scenes where you're going to have the Fremen fighting the Harkonnens. So you have Rizzo the Rat was going to be my pick for Fade Rautha. That would be good. <laughs> and then all the Harkonnens are just going to be the other rats. Yeah. And then all the yeah. all the Fremen are going to be chickens. That kind of works a little bit better. Yeah. I think that works a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. I told you it makes sense. That makes a little bit more sense that way, I guess. Yeah. That would be funny to see all the rats and stuff. So, who would play Fayed then when Fayed comes along? I guess we'll just have to wait. We'll, we'll have to do this again when Dune. Well, no, we just said uh, yeah. Rizzo would be Fade Rautha. Yeah, that that would work. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that way, the Harkonnen soldiers are all the rats. Yeah. And <laughs> the Fremen are all the chickens. So I think this is a good place to wrap it up. I think we've rehashed this enough. Uh, Rojan, where can people find you? Uh, you can find my show at projectarchivist.com. I will be firing up the microphones again next week for the first time in a few months. Things are starting to settle down a little bit in my life to where I can get back to recording the show. Yeah, you can find us at uh, www.projectarchivist.com. I'm going on 13 years of doing that show now, I think. And you can find us at the Old Nerds Drinking Facebook page, the Old Nerds Drinking Facebook group. Come for the podcast, stay for the memes. Uh, Instagram, and and I'm actually thinking about tinkering with TikTok for uh, at Old Nerds Drinking. I'm John Patrick, the Master Control Program. And this is Rojan. Peace out, folks. End of line. Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! German? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now! So, what's the plan? Take car, go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. Might as well write him off. Let's close up the bridge. Let's get out of here. Close it up. Lights out. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. We're going streaking! Yeah! See here, please disperse. Nothing to see here.